Major funding for Backstory is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the University of Virginia, and the Robert and Joseph Cornell Memorial Foundation. From Virginia Humanities, this is Backstory. Welcome to Backstory, the show that explains the history behind today's headlines. I'm Joanne Freeman. I'm Brian Ballow. And I'm Ed Ayers. On June 26, 1987, Justice Lewis Powell announced his retirement from the Supreme Court. The courtly Southerner, as one news outlet described him, had been the swing vote for the nine ideologically divided justices. Given Powell's role on the bench, Americans were anxious to hear who President Ronald Reagan would tap to fill the empty seat. Within days, he named conservative judge Robert Bork as his pick for the job, setting off a contentious nomination battle. Senate Democrats feared Bork would move the court and the law of the land decisively to the right. Robert Bork's America is a land in which women would be forced into back alley abortions. Blacks would sit at segregated lunch counters. This is Senator Edward Kennedy speaking out against Bork's nomination less than an hour after it was announced. And school children could not be taught about evolution. And what it did was it froze things. That's NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg. Politicians went, I'm not sure I want to get way out in front of this. I think I'll just wait. In the meantime, Kennedy, who was an incredibly hard worker, started working the phones to make sure that happened, talking to leading interest group people, talking to moderate Republicans. And it just was a constitutional drama unlike any we've ever seen before. Jeffrey Rosen is president of the National Constitution Center. In the summer of 1987, he interned for Senate Judiciary Committee Chair Joseph Biden. This gave him a front-row seat for the Bork drama. There had been contested hearings before. But this was the first one in modern memory when out and out, front and center, there was an ideological fight. Bork had been an extremely prolific and opinionated scholar who'd expressed views about all the most contested issues about constitutional law. He had opposed the public accommodations provisions of the Civil Rights Act. He'd questioned landmarks of the Warren and Berger eras, including most notably the Griswold decision creating a constitutional right to privacy. He had written a lot of things that were considered just unacceptable to large numbers of people and not just liberal Democrats. Bork supporters welcomed the prospect of a much more conservative court, but they were careful to champion the nominee's qualifications, not his ideology. The debate raged all summer. Finally, Robert Bork appeared before the Senate Judiciary Committee in September of 1987. I want to begin by thanking the president for placing my name in nomination for this most important position. He did not do any practice sessions with the White House, what are called murder boards. He thought those were for sissies. I am quite willing to discuss with you my judicial philosophy and the approach I take to deciding cases. I cannot, of course... The committee was especially interested in Bork's judicial philosophy based on the theory of original intent. The idea of original intent is the meaning of the Constitution that the founding fathers had that it's not a living document. It doesn't change with time. 
In Bork's view, recent decisions in favor of abortion and desegregation did not fit the founders' original intentions. And so the question of precedent and whether Bork would uphold those decisions dominated the hearings. Bork backpedaled on some of his more controversial views, trying to appear more moderate. And he told the Senate Judiciary Committee that he took precedent seriously. And I think it was Kennedy who said to him, did you ever say anything different? And he said no. And then Kennedy played a tape of Bork at Canisius College saying, I uh, don't think that in the field of constitutional law, precedent is all that important. And if you become convinced that a prior court has misread the Constitution, I think it's your duty to go back and correct it. Which was exactly contrary to what he was testifying about at these very hearings. And I thought it was a devastating moment because it put his word in question. The Senate ultimately voted to reject his nomination to the Supreme Court. Republicans have not to this day gotten over it. They call it being borked. The Senate eventually confirmed President Reagan's third Supreme Court nominee, Justice Anthony Kennedy. But the battle over Robert Bork's nomination had long-term consequences. And it was the beginning of this process of polarization that basically turned the confirmation process into partisan war zones. Rosen says that politics have always been a part of the nomination process, but recent presidents have been careful to nominate judges without paper trails or judges who advertise ideological leanings for fear they'll be borked. Ever since the Bork hearings, nominees have faced the relentless gaze of 24-hour news networks and attack ads from interest groups. I guess what's unfortunate is just that it's a political process that seems to have broken down, and that's something that the Bork hearings set into motion. Which brings us to today. Justice Kennedy, the man who filled the seat Bork could not, has announced his retirement from the bench. President Trump recently announced his pick for the position. Tonight, it is my honor and privilege to announce that I will nominate Judge Brett Kavanaugh to the United States Supreme Court. But it's not clear that his confirmation will be smooth sailing either. After Justice Antonin Scalia died in 2016, Senate Republicans refused to consider President Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland. Trump filled that seat upon taking office last year, and it's now filled by Neil Gorsuch. Given this recent turbulence, it's not clear how Senate Democrats will handle Kavanaugh's nomination. Joanne, Ed, just how likely is it that a nominee is going to fail? How many nominees have failed since the founding? You know, it's really surprising to think about these numbers. So there have been 160 nominations to the Supreme Court. And of those, 36 were not confirmed by the Senate. Even when you count the six who were later confirmed, that still leaves two dozen who were not. So it's not that unusual for the Senate to refuse to confirm what the president has sent forward. Is this a recent phenomenon or does this failure of nominees go all the way back to the founding? Actually, all the way back to George Washington. Uh, Washington actually put forward the nomination of John Rutledge of South Carolina. 
And Rutledge made a public statement, gave a speech at around that time in which he was upset about a, a pending treaty with Britain, the, the Jay Treaty, which was sort of reconciling some issues that had been left over from the Treaty of Paris, from the American Revolution. And a lot of people thought that the treaty was too soft on Britain. And John Rutledge was one of them. And supposedly he said in this public speech that as much as he dearly loved George Washington, he would rather see Washington in his grave than to see him actually sign on to this treaty. So in this original nomination that, that gets rejected, you end up with the quirky position of people from Washington's own party, Federalists, denying and, and refuting and opposing the nomination from essentially their own party. They vote against Rutledge's nomination. It's remarkable that did not require a tweet or an, a secret recording <laughs> to still have that impact. It's just something he said out loud in front of people and apparently still counted. Shocking. Yeah. Shocking. Wow. And, you know, Washington was such a popular guy. I shudder to think what happened with people like Adams. Well, poor John Quincy Adams. Yeah, the Adams has always had problems as presidents. They're, they're the one-termers for good reason, actually, because they were, they were kind of independent-minded guys. But in this case, um, John Quincy Adams has his very own failed nomination, but it's not for doing anything particularly outrageous. Um, there's the death of a Supreme Court justice, and John Quincy Adams nominates John Crittenden, who's a Kentucky lawyer, uh, in 1828. Uh, and as luck would have it, uh, this happens after there has already been a presidential election and Andrew Jackson has been made president of the United States. So Adams at this point is essentially a lame duck president. And so the Senate, which at this point is uh, dominated by Jacksonian Democrats, is not really excited about the idea of Adams being able to name a Supreme Court justice. So they pass a resolution in which they declare it, and this is actually the word that they use, inexpedient <laughs> for them to consider the nomination at that particular moment. And so the Senate d basically does not consider the nomination. And uh, even though there's some discussion uh, and an attempt even to pass an amendment to that resolution that says it is the Senate's job to consider these nominations, the, the amendment does not pass, the resolution does pass, and it's not until uh, Jackson is made president, basically. It's a, a, not that long after his inauguration that he then is allowed to appoint a new justice. But I'm assuming a guy as popular as Andrew Jackson had no trouble getting his nominees through. Well, as it turns out, not only did Jackson shoot people before he was president uh, on the dueling ground, <laughs> they ended up shooting himself in the feet <laughs> quite often. Oh. Yeah, because he comes in and he's pushing very hard to really change things. And he feels that he has this huge mandate from the American people. So he decides that uh, the Bank of the United States is a corrupt institution that's really ruining the nation. And so he's going to do whatever it takes to get rid of it. So Jackson was so determined to ram through this destruction of the Bank of the United States that he appointed a man that he knew would be compliant with his plans, Roger B. Taney of Maryland. For the first time in American history, Congress refused to confirm Jackson's own nomination to his own cabinet. So Jackson thought, well, here's a great idea. If that failed, let me nominate him for Associate Justice of the Supreme <laughs> Court. Right? Let me compound my error since we're talking about the bank. Yeah, and so not only then did Jackson see Tawney being rejected twice, first as a cabinet member, then as an associate justice, he says, hey, here's a great idea. I'm going to put him forward as chief justice of the Supreme Court. <laughs> and his opponents blocked 
the vote on the last day of that session and even tried to reduce the number of seats on the Supreme Court by one. But when the Senate reconvened, Jackson saw his nomination confirmed by a very slim margin under the new Democratic control. So Roger B. Taney ended up becoming a very famous Supreme Court justice, one of the most influential in American history. Taney presided over the worst decision in American history, the Dred Scott decision, which declared that no black American, free or enslaved, had any rights that white Americans were bound to acknowledge. So you have this guy who is barely squeaks into the Supreme Court, does so only on a partisan vote, and then presides over it for 28 years till almost the end of the Civil War. And it shows you how you can't predict how something's going to turn out depending on how it begins. And to inject a, a very contemporary note into things, partisans today on both sides of the aisle are acutely aware of the age of the people they're putting forth for nominations on the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. I think what strikes us is how anomalous it seems to have something of such enduring consequences decided by such contingent, expedient or inexpedient partisan <laughs> tussles. Mm -hmm. You know, it sounds like something that the whole idea of the Supreme Court is to stand above all this tawdry uh, pushing and pulling, but it's the pushing and pulling that creates the position in the first place. Now, one of the big changes of our time has been the way in which Americans bring up our children. In little more than a century, the American child has gone from being seen and not heard, barely tolerated in some instances, to being listened to, cherished, and placed right at the center of 21st century family life. Much of that sea change is down to one man, pediatrician Dr. Benjamin Spock, whose best-selling series of parenting books transformed the way generations of Americans potty-trained, fed, and burped their little ones. In a new segment for Backstory, Spock's biographer argues that the publication day of one of America's most successful parenting manuals is a day that changed America. Dr. Benjamin Spock, from the Common Sense Book of Baby and Child Care. Soon you're going to have a baby. Maybe you have one already. You're happy and excited. But if you haven't had much experience, you wonder whether you are going to know how to do a good job. Trust yourself. You know more than you think you do.
I'm Thomas Mayer, and for me, the day that changed America was July 14, 1946, the day that the first edition of Dr. Benjamin Spock's Common Sense Book of Baby and Child Care appeared in bookstores. It was a book devoted to child-rearing, and it revolutionized the way that families would raise their children. Dr. Spock's book arrived right at the end of World War II. As World War II was finished and a lot of GIs were coming home looking to start families and looking to Dr. Spock's book as a guide of how best to raise their children. This was the beginning of America's suburbs. A lot of people moved out of the cities out to suburban homes and they were starting families. So Spock's book was almost like a guide or a map, virtually any type of question that you would have. Uh, that book had some practical advice for it, but it also provided an emotional framework for uh, raising children. Don't be afraid of your baby. <coughs> Parents before Dr. Spock came along relied on child-rearing advice that was much stricter, and it was much also emotionally cooler. It was more what they called behaviorist. A, a strict set of rules would be employed, and a lot of it had, was based upon religious views, that if you spare the rod, you spoil the child. All parents expect to influence their children, but many are surprised to find it's a two-way street, and they learn from their parenting and their children. In other words, parenting is an enormously influential developmental step for adults in their own lives. The first line of Spock's book is, you know more than you think you do. And that was a line that was terribly reassuring to parents. That was something that was the perceived wisdom that Spock had had uh, as a pediatrician, but also as somebody who had been trained uh, in Freudian psychology as well. And so I don't think America had any idea uh, how much the ba this famous baby book that sounded like it was the perceived wisdom of a country doctor was actually the translation of Freud's theories of infantile sexuality. If a boy around the age of three sees a girl undressed, he's apt to say, where is her wee-wee? If he doesn't receive a satisfactory answer right away, he may come to the conclusion that some accident has happened to her. Next comes the anxious thought, that might happen to me, too. But it wasn't sex, rather war, that got Spock into trouble. Specifically, protests about the Vietnam War, which turned the wholesome family pediatrician into a political activist and eventually a prisoner. Uh, I was just trying to stop the war in Vietnam by telling the American people, uh, work against it. Uh, tell the president, tell your senators, tell your congressmen. Um, 
We were tried, we were convicted, uh, we were sentenced to two years in jail. Fortunately, uh, two, uh, a year later, the uh, Federal Court of Appeals reversed uh, the decision, so I didn't have to serve any time on that rap. Mm -hmm. um, though I, ha I did, uh, for the first time in my life, experience the inside of a jail. I spent a night in jail uh, six or eight uh, times as a result of civil disobedient demonstrations. He had raised a whole generation of children, and he was not going to stand idly by while so many of the, this generation was being killed in what he considered to be a foolhardy war. So I think what's really interesting to see by, by today's standards is how much Spock put on the line. The sales of his baby books suffered considerably. I think went down by about a third. But he did it all for the sense of principle. And it was something that I think is quite admirable when you look back on it. Spock's book had a number of different editions, and his book was kind of a living document. It was something that changed as America changed, and it did reflect some of the, uh, the changes in America with each different edition. So uh, when he got married to his second wife, Mary Morgan, she was very much of that hippie type of uh, culture, vegan diets and I think his book became more and more uh, progressive, some might say politically correct. Is gunplay good or bad for children? For many years, I emphasized its harmlessness. But nowadays, I'd give parents much more encouragement in their inclination to guide their children away from violence. Americans have often been tolerant of harshness, lawlessness, and violence. We were ruthless in dealing with the Indians. I believe that the survival of the world now depends on a much greater awareness of the need to avoid war. Of course, his approach at home was different than the advice that he was actually giving to America. He felt that he was repeating kind of the strict, emotionally cool, disciplinarian approach of his parents and he carried it on to his two sons. And later on in life, he became aware of this dichotomy and realized um, how difficult it can be for parents to, to be more emotionally responsive to their children. And that particularly if you grew up in a strict household, that it was a dramatic revolutionary change to treat children more uh, amiably with a balance of discipline and love. When we look at America, Spock's book is a really good ex example, emblematic of the American spirit uh, of that time, that can-do type of approach. Uh, it was a time of abundance. It was a time of great optimism. And Dr. Spock's book really reflects all of that optimism, the optimism of new parents starting a new family. Thomas Mayer is the author of Dr. Spock, An American Life. And now, the Backstory Players present The Strange Case of the Famous Detective 
and his unlikely admirer. It was a chilly July evening. The wind whistled down Baker Street, rattling the shutters at 221B and groaning around our chimney pots. My friend lay deep in thought on the couch, his eyes half closed, when suddenly from the street we heard the sound of vehicles screeching to a halt. Oh my goodness, Mr. Holmes, Mr. Holmes! Now listen, Watson, if I am not very much mistaken, our redutable landlady, Mrs. Hudson, is about to tell us about the arrival of a convoy of heavily armored vehicles at the door of our bachelor digs. Some burly men are at the door. They say they're from the Secret Service, but they're making quite a racket. Is there anything you noticed about their vehicle, Mrs. Hudson? Well, yes. It's marked with a seal. Not that kind of seal. Well, round it is, with an eagle on it. And they gave me this note. What does it say, Holmes? Uh, As it happens, Watson, a great deal. The paper is fine as vellum, the color a distinctive off-white, the seal unmistakable. This letter has come from the desk of the President of the United States. And if I'm not mistaken, it is a sign that the resident of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue has an unlikely enthusiasm for the resident of 221B Baker Street. You mean? I mean that the president of the United States is an admirer of my work. How did you work that out, Holmes? Elementary, my dear Ballow. Terry Hunt is a member of the Baker Street Irregulars, one of America's most exclusive literary societies devoted to the study of Sherlock Holmes. 221B. Here dwell together still two men of note, who never lived and so can never die. How very near they seem, yet how remote, that age before the world went all awry. But still the game's afoot for those with ears, attuned to catch the distant view halloo. England is England yet, for all our fears. Only those things the heart believes are true. A yellow fog swirls past the windowpane as night descends upon this fabled street. A lonely hansom splashes through the rain. The ghostly gas lamps fail at twenty feet. Here, though the world explode, these two survive, and it is always 1895. Vincent Starrett. Vincent Starrett uh, is described in, in, in a biography as the last bookman, and he was uh, incredibly knowledgeable uh, in literature. He was uh, an accomplished poet and also did, uh, did fiction pieces, did essays, and uh, was a particular uh, had a particular interest in Sherlock Holmes and mysteries, and um, met uh, Franklin Roosevelt when, uh, when when Starrett was a newspaper man in D.C. about 1914, and they had a shared interest in both Holmes and Franklin Roosevelt's cigarettes. Starrett would come and strike up a conversation um, and bum some cigarettes. And, and Roosevelt 
enjoyed that in his company, and, and he even told him at some point that if uh, FDR was not in the office, the, the cigarette uh, case is in, in, in the top left drawer of the desk, you know, help yourself. Starrett was uh, seminal in the beginning of uh, Holmesian studies. He, he were edited in a, a couple of books of essays uh, about Sherlock that really brought interest uh, in the early 1930s and even before the initial creation of the Baker Street Irregulars Organization in 1934. Constitution, Article 1. The name of this society shall be the Baker Street Irregulars. Well, the Baker Street Irregulars is the earliest Holmesian group in the world. It was started by Christopher Morley in the beginning of 1934. Article 2. Its purpose shall be the study of the sacred writings. It takes its name from the group of street urchins that Sherlock Holmes uh, utilized to get information from for him uh, in London. They could go everywhere, hear everything, see everything, as, as, he, as he put it. So uh, this was the, the name that Morley adopted for uh, the, the group. Article 3. All persons shall be eligible for membership who pass an examination in the sacred writings set by officers of the society and who are considered otherwise suitable. It has grown from uh, a group of uh, Holmes aficionados, as he put it, in 1934 for men only and has grown to a large organization. It's the, that and the Sherlock Holmes Society of London are the premier groups in the world. And uh, they, Baker Street Regulars uh, publish a journal. They, they have a, a book publishing arm. They have conferences. And they have an annual gathering in New York uh, around uh, January 6th every year. And January 6th is by Morley's figuring Sherlock Holmes's birthday. All other business shall be left for the monthly meeting. There shall be no monthly meeting. In 1942, the Baker Street Irregulars, Edgar Smith, wrote to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt to ask him to join the society. The White House, Washington, August 5th, 1942. Private. Dear Edgar Smith, of course, I shall be delighted to accept membership, honoris causa, in the Baker Street Irregulars. I am glad to have a part in any movement whose purpose is to keep green the memory of Sherlock Holmes. Now that I belong to the BSI, I cannot restrain the impulse to tell you that since I have had to give up cruising on the Potomac, I sometimes go off the record on Sundays to an undisclosed retreat. In that spot, the group of little cabins which shelter the Secret Service men is known as Baker Street. Many thanks for the honor. Very sincerely yours, Franklin D. Roosevelt. The White House, Washington, December 18, 1944. Dear Buttons, Please tell the Baker Street Irregulars how much I wish I could be with them on January 5th. Select indeed will be this assembly of the 40 aficionados, and it would give me a real thrill to be of the number. Gladly do I embrace this opportunity 
in absentia, to send hearty greetings to the Irregulars, in whose membership I am honored to be included. On further study, I am inclined to revise my former estimate that Holmes was a foundling. Actually, he was born an American, and was brought up by his father, or a foster father, in the underground world, thus learning all the tricks of the trade in the highly developed American art of crime. At an early age, he felt the urge to do something for mankind. He was too well known in top circles in this country, and therefore chose to operate in England. His attributes were primarily American, not English. I feel that further study of this postulant will bring good results to history. Very sincerely yours, Franklin D. Roosevelt. And he had a, a, a correspondence that, that went on uh, till his death uh, with Edgar Smith and, and the Irregulars uh, about Sherlock Holmes, and he enjoyed that. But he did ask that they keep it secret, that, they, that it just be known to the members of the Irregulars because he felt that spending time studying and discussing the Holmes stories might be seen as frivolous. And in fact, it was, it was kept secret until his uh, death. It's always good to hear of the activities of the Baker Street Irregulars. I am delighted to know that my postulate with reference to Holmes's criminal background in America brought such heated discussion and debate. It only goes to show that interest in the whole field of Sherlockiana is perennial. His successor, Harry Truman, also had an interest in Holmes and was um, invited and accepted uh, honorary membership. Um, but he didn't take as active a role as uh, FDR did. He did not write about it, um, partly because when, when he was asked to send messages for the annual dinners, uh, his secretary wrote that uh, he gets so many of these requests that as a matter of course, the White House has decided they, that he, he will not honor any of them because he can't do them all. But um, Truman did have an interest and he was an honorary member. And in original research conducted for Backstory, Terry Hunt has discovered that the Sherlock Holmes connection reached to the desk of President Eisenhower. Yes, this uh, is something that I was uh, able to find out uh, through the Eisenhower Library uh, in Abilene and, and the Eisenhower Farm in Gettysburg, that um, Ike had uh, an interest in Arthur Conan Doyle. And Arthur's uh, son, Adrian, thought very highly uh, of, uh, of Eisenhower, thought that he was, was quite knowledgeable about uh, his father, and uh, told him so and sent uh, Ike a um, limited edition uh, centenary volume uh, issued that uh, Adrian issued in 1959, and this was, this was a gift. Well, uh, Ike was seriously interested, and one of the great things that the staff in Abilene uh, tipped me off to is there is a photograph of Ike as supreme commander of NATO, and he's formal in his uniform. He's seated at his desk, and the one book on his desk is a biography of Arthur Conan Doyle. And in fact, uh, there, that is at the Eisenhower farm and also a copy of the complete 
Sherlock Holmes. So uh, Ike, while, while not uh, a Baker Street irregular, did continue that interest that uh, presidents had in Holmes. Terry Hunt of the Baker Street Irregulars on Sherlock Holmes' presidential connections. That's going to do it for us today, but you can keep the conversation going online. Let us know what you thought of the episode or ask us your questions about history. You'll find us at BackstoryRadio.org or send an email to Backstory at Virginia.edu. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Backstory Radio. Whatever you do, don't be a stranger. This episode of Backstory was produced by David Stenhouse, Nina Ernest, and Ramona Martinez. Jamal Milner is our technical director, Diana Williams is our digital editor, and Joey Thompson is our researcher. Additional help came from Anjali Bishash, Sam Blumstein, Hannah Cho, Emma Gregg, and Gabriel Hunter Chang. Our theme song was written by Nick Thorburn. Other music in this episode came from Ketza, Poddington Bear, and Jazar. And as always, thanks to the Johns Hopkins Studios in Baltimore. Backstory is produced at Virginia Humanities. Major support is provided by an anonymous donor, the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Provost Office at the University of Virginia, the Joseph and Robert Cornell Memorial Foundation, and the Johns Hopkins University. Additional support is provided by the Tomato Fund, cultivating fresh ideas in the arts, the humanities, and the environment. Brian Ballow is Professor of History at the University of Virginia. Ed Ayers is Professor of the Humanities and President Emeritus of the University of Richmond. Joanne Freeman is Professor of History and American Studies at Yale University. Nathan Connolly is the Herbert Baxter Adams Associate Professor of History at the Johns Hopkins University. Backstory was created by Andrew Wyndham for Virginia Humanities. <laughs>